We need to ask the question, does the American dream need to morph rather than be out of reach? Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right. Every so often, I turn the tables to ask myself, as I do my guests, to read the tea leaves of our times. In this episode, I'm going to take some leaps, so buckle up. In part, this episode marks a sober statistic about our predicament. In part, it tells the story of one community, mine, coming to grips with the real estate fallout of population pressures and the obscene wealth gap. In part, it's about the necessity um, of transfer to transform the DNA of America, which is freedom, from wide open spaces to the freedom of belonging. As I said, buckle up. I'm going to be reading this, but I'm trying to make it as interesting as possible for you. I'm recording this on November 15th, 2022, the day the world population officially hit 8 billion. This tsunami of humans, every one of them precious, grows exponentially. When I was born in 1945, there were 2.5 billion humans on this earth. I came of age when the pill came on the scene, splitting sex from reproduction. At that time, we were about 3 billion. When James Hansen alerted us to the greenhouse effect in 1988, we just passed 5 billion. A year later, when I learned about overshoot and collapse, there were about five and a quarter billion people. In case you missed this lesson in geobiology, overshoot is what happens in nature when a species encounters a rich food source in the absence of competitors. Be it fruit flies or humans, we multiply beyond the limits of what the food source can supply and we die off. That's the collapse part. I learned about overshoot and collapse and the IPAP formula at the first large U.S. conference on sustainable development. One, for one dinner, I sat at a table with a renowned demographer. How many people can the earth support, I asked? Two billion at the level of technology and consumption of the U.S. in the 1950s. And he took another bite while I dropped my fork and tried to comprehend what would need to happen to the other three billion. I wanted to explain a little bit that um, IPAT formula. Uh, it was a simplified expression of our sustainability predicament. It stands for impact. Uh, the I stands for impact, which derives from population times affluence times technology. In people speak, that's the number of people times their ability to consume more than they need times the technology that enable consumption to speed up. When Your Money, Your Life was published, we passed 5.5 billion. We hoped that our book would impact not just a bit, not just the IPAT equation, but um, you know, that whole process of overconsuming. We set the year 2000 as our goal for turning consumerism around. But by then, we'd shot past 6 billion. Now, 
decades of research and reports and conferences on overpopulation produced one key and actionable insight. The more educated women are and the more financially empowered women are, the fewer births. While the rate of increase has come down in part because of women's liberation from chattel, this dodged the very difficult fact that year over year, our numbers increase while the pie, so to speak, the feedstock of civilization called food, minerals, water, soil fertility, decreases. To raise the question directly is to be like China with their one-child policy, or worse, to be fascists deciding who should live and who should die. We reached 7 billion in 2011, and now, 11 years later, 8 billion. Put it another way. When I was born, there were about 15 people per square kilometer. Now, there are 53. Whew, take a breath. <laughs> the pressure of our species growth against the limits of our niche, the earth, to support us is hard to apprehend with our conscious minds. I've spent most of my adult life trying to change this outcome in some way or another, in a way to deflect the panic I first felt at that dinner with the demographer. Okay, now let's get down to earth and over to my island home in the Pacific Northwest from, for some stories of how we are trying to tuck more humans onto our island in the face of growth pressures. Our culture is layered from in-migration by white settlers ever since the first farmer came to grow potatoes and wheat on the Camas Prairie that had fed the Coast Salish people for centuries. First farmers, then loggers, add religious idealists, then an enclave of white nationalists, layer in old hippies, summer fishing camps, evangelicals, artists, blue collar workers, Navy families who return after their duty, then layer on the consultant class and retirees. And now another layer that is tearing through the prior ones, the financialization of real estate, people storing money in homes they don't necessarily intend to live in. The extreme wealth gap has given some the ability to outbid people who intend to live here. And the ratcheting up means that essential workers, and by that I don't mean you know, just factory workers, I mean, teachers, postal clerks, you know, restaurant workers, shopkeepers, the pet store, et cetera, et cetera. Essential workers can't afford to buy. This hot market got landlords to either raise rents or sell to realize the once in a lifetime profit. Then we have vacation rentals that replaced long-term rentals for tourists and remote workers. Bottom line, like many other communities, our working class can't afford to live here. We're in shock here. What do we do to keep our community from becoming what's now called a NORC, a naturally occurring retirement community? The average age in our village is already 67. Among the solutions our community is considering are three that tell some of the story of the old one of a man's home is his castle and the one that's coming into being, that we are all in this together and we need to adapt. Solution one is a development on the edge of town that is hotly contested. 
To meet the affordability criteria, it needs to be relatively densely packed with a variety of housing types from family homes to a tiny home neighborhood to over garage apartments and townhomes and such. Solution two has one of those unstoppable community women at the helm. It's a tiny house village inside the boundary of our town that has been slowly built with lots of love, money, and labor uh, by members of several island churches. There are 10 294-square-foot houses that are almost done, along with a laundry cabin. They will provide homes for lower-income employed people. Solution three is what I've done and many others, housemates, but with a twist. I have a less than 2,000 square foot split entry home. There are millions of houses like mine with the same floor plan. The ground floor is a family room and a garage. Upstairs are three bedrooms down a hall, two baths, and an open floor plan, great room. The family room was converted into a mother-in-law apartment before I finally bought the house. It already had a separate entrance and a bathroom, so the addition of a sink, apartment, fridge, and some countertop appliances has made it home for over a dozen people, a physician's assistant and her daughter, a financial planner, a filmmaker, an actor, a director, some farm interns, and a farm school instructor, a hotel receptionist, a nurse, and a care facility. On the other side, I converted my two-car garage into a studio by replacing one of the doors with a sliding glass door and connecting kitchen and bathroom plumbing into my sewer hookup. In that side, I've had a chef, a shop clerk, an interior designer, a contractor, a fine furniture builder, an actor, an AmeriCorps volunteer, and a college professor. Then a millennial journalist I knew asked if she could rent my upstairs guest room for several months to work on her novel. Right after her move-in, the pandemic made us quarantine companions, and it was so much fun. I've had two more millennials, actors, and a tech worker live there, one after another, and I've come to love younger creative energy in the house who also help with projects either pay partial rent or actually the most recent one just traded full rent for a lot of house upkeep. That room has a mini fridge, an electric tea kettle, a microwave and a hot plate and almost exclusive access to the guest bath. But we all live independent lives. So these three things, the tiny house village, the new development that will maybe increase the number of houses in our town by 20%. And this in this like home housemates, like, like I'm doing it, these re represent three approaches to increasing living space for working class folks in our increasingly upscale community. But some of the barriers to all three approaches are well known. Developers and environmentalists are traditional enemies. In our case, the site for the approximately 150 new homes from fourplexes to family size is by a sewage treatment plant and an inviolate wetland. And now our island also has a single source aquifer. So is there really enough water for approximately 300 showers and a thousand more flushes a day? The land is on a slope and people worry who pays for, for if and when that destabilizes. 
Thus, the resource constraints of more people arrives in my tiny village. Neighboring homeowners who moved here for the peace, quiet, and forest vistas also have a thing or two to say about development. They don't want the traffic, noise of building, and then the noise of people in cars. You can almost hear their minds were. There goes my piece of heaven. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> there goes my retirement. Here goes property values. Will my kids be safe? Option two, the tiny home village has created a lot of excitement. It's been a long, hard battle to build. They wanted to be on city sewer and water, not septic, so they had to find land in the city. Volunteer labor did a lot of the building, keeping costs down. The city would not budge, though, on chain charging each house a hefty individual sewer hookup fee, adding tens of thousands to the project. It's also a question whether 290-foot square, square foot homes will meet the needs of workers and their families, which, of course, many do have families. In both the development in the tiny home village, one constraint that is almost insurmountable now for affordability is that new construction, excluding land, is anywhere between $250 a square foot for a plain box to $800 a square foot for a custom home. Can we really build our way out of our bind? The city council is working hard to identify where building can happen and how to change codes and zoning to permit more density, but could a restaurant server actually afford to buy into our town at that price per square foot? And, and could an owner of one of these new houses afford to rent it out for what an essential worker can afford? How promising is option three, what I've done and what others have done too? Some research revealed that you can tuck people in the way I have if they are considered roommates in a home rather than renters in a mother-in-law's separate apartment. What's the difference? Turns out that here, it's whether there's a 220-volt hookup for a stove with an oven. Of course, there are other considerations to make this option legal, affordable, and practical, but none of the hoops feels that big to a group of friends who share my passion to save our homegrown culture, who started the In-Home Suites group. In-home suites can be a room, it can be a whole wing of a house, or a whole floor. They share the same sewer, water, utilities, garbage collection, and probably laundry with the house. It's not a separate place, but no one has to put up with someone else's mess in the kitchen or the bathroom. The advantages to the homeowner are many. Rental income, security of having someone in the home, possible work trade, and a bit of human connection if desired. For workers, it's a chance to live in part of a nice home in a safe neighborhood, possibly walking distance to work, and the possibility of some work trade to keep rents reasonable. As a NORC, you remember that means naturally occurring retirement community, we have many family homes with just one remaining parent living in them and unwilling to leave. Often it's a single person, a widow or a widower. 
The realtors are very interested. They know better than anyone how middle-income folks are being pushed out. The senior services agencies are cautiously optimistic. They know better than anyone the toll of aging alone in a large house with no family close by. In-home suites opens a chink in our real estate impossibility, taking advantage of already built homes with underutilized space, in-home suites could add dozens of new, warm, dry, comfortable homes for workers in our community in very short order and hundreds over the next year or two. And now we're making that cultural scout jump. Hang on. Given the cost of building the new subdivision of 100 home, 150 homes from tiny to over 2,000 square feet, that doesn't guarantee that people earning under $50 an hour, meaning most of our teachers are landscapers, contractors, shopkeepers, can afford to live here given that. And by the time these homes are built at least a year from now, maybe more, how many more of our essential workers would have flown the coop? Tiny homes, as cool as they may be now, may not suit couples or families that work hard all day and need a hot shower, a hot meal, and some relaxation time come 5 p.m. We need to ask the question, does the American dream need to morph rather than be out of reach? I wonder if we, humanity, could squeeze through this tight spot of population pressure plus climate change plus resource depletion by a breakthrough in sharing spaces we own but do not use. Generosity is helpful, but not needed because property owners get plenty of tangible and intangible benefits. Even in my community, I notice ever more people multi-solving for rising costs on fixed incomes and loneliness as we outlive our mates and friends and the need for a helping hand and a listening ear. We are finding elegant ways to share what we have without sacrificing quality of life. Some may presume that population pressures will bring out our worst and most hostile selves, protecting what we have and driving out threats. But something else is on the horizon, and we can grab it. The very DNA of America is freedom, which we currently see as ownership the ability to draw a boundary and keep others out. But maybe freedom in a world of 8 billion and a shrinking ecological pie is the capacity to negotiate boundaries within shared spaces. We do, after all, share this earth. It is in the nature of Post Carbon Institute to wrestle with such complexity and the population consumption juggernaut needs to be worked out worked out out loud and worked out together. We need to flip freedom on its head from mine, 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 to a gracious sharing for mutual benefit. Our towns and cities can stop being warrants of ever small, smaller personal space and become ecologies of shared spaces. What could possibly go right? Well, we can notice the community solutions growing among the marginalized, be they youth, poor people, people of color, people in countries other than the United States, and lift them up as a more prosperous way to live. So many sharing networks already exist, from buy nothing groups to communal households to neighborhood tool sharing 
to open air markets and on and on. And then there's public consumption, public libraries, public spaces, public parks, places that we already are used to sharing public school. If we squint, we can see it. We can discover the freedom of belonging as we end isolation as a symbol of wealth and privilege. We can let these growth pangs refine our souls. We can become in-home suite by in-home suite, the beloved community. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.